Hello, and welcome to the Newism podcast, where we talk to social entrepreneurs and big thinkers to discover how they would shape a new, more sustainable and inclusive global system where humans live within the means of the planet and all forms of life can thrive. We're kicking off season three with Sue Riddleston, the co-founder and CEO of Bioregional. Bioregional champions a better way to live by working with partners to create more sustainable places to live and work. They famously created Bedzed, an iconic large-scale eco-village in South London, which acts as an inspiration for zero-carbon living across the world. Sue and Bioregional are also behind One Planet Living, a vision and framework for a world where everyone can live happily within the Earth's resources. Sue was integral to the development of the SDGs in 2010 and helped to make the London 2012 Olympics the greenest games ever. Mel and Sue's conversation focuses, of course, on how we can live within the means of our planet, the most important challenge we face today. Sue describes her One Planet Living framework and the thinking behind the creation of BedZed, which is proof that a greener future is doable. We know what to do. Mel is particularly impressed by Sue's work with a major home improvement retailer to help them become more sustainable. And they discuss localization, diversifying economies, and how we can strategically rethink urban development. The current series of the Newism podcast was recorded during lockdown, so we were at the mercy of technology and Wi-Fi connections. Please bear with us if the sound quality isn't up to scratch. We promise the content of the conversations is worth it. Welcome to the latest uh, Newism podcast. I'm delighted to say uh, that we have Sue Riddleston with us today, a social entrepreneur, He's been working in the whole sphere of uh, the environment for, for many years and doing some fantastic work. She's the CEO of Bioregional. So Sue, so tell us a little bit to start with about Bioregional. What, what, what does it do? Okay. Well, great. Thanks for asking me to uh, join in with the new ISM. I'm honoured. At Bioregional, we, we're not a big organisation, but we work with partners to show how we can live well within the natural limits of our planet and leave space for wildlife and wilderness. And that's what we call one planet living. So it's just this idea that we're consuming too much stuff. We all know that. And we've got a growing population on the planet. And yes, we're becoming a bit more efficient, but we're consuming too much. And I think there are, what we're trying to show is that we can, we can actually have good lives Um, by having a more circular economy, by going zero carbon, and by treating each other fairly and equitably and and focusing perhaps more on our locality, our bioregion. So uh, you're based in London, and so you have that work there, but but it's global, what what, what you're doing. So you almost have a kind of a mechanism or or, or, or an example of how you do this and then others follow, is that right? Yeah, so... um, I'm speaking to you here from uh, Bedzed Eco Village in London, which is probably our most well-known project. It's even in features in school kids' textbooks. And uh, here at Bedzed, um, it was it was a successful project, and we still get it's been built for 18 years now, and we still get visitors, politicians, experts, people come from all over the world. And when we first did this project in 2002, uh, people said to us. Oh, we really like that. Could could you do a bed Z with us? Uh, and so we 
systematized what we have the strategies that we had here so it's uh, zero carbon energy use in the buildings you know zero waste things like culture and community uh, and we, we, we systematized it into these into 10 principles and a framework and a process which we call one planet living which anyone can use and it has been used around the world and sometimes we partner with people to, to help them uh, bring in all our knowledge and expertise and sometimes people just get on with we train them or they you know they just get on and they can use it themselves and, and they might ask us to give it a tick you know that it's a good project <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you our 10 principles Mel because I know you want to know them. please please I, I think it's really fascinating what you do uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to know the 10 principles yeah sure. so I mean the first thing is um, that is in the in the concept of a zero carbon approach because we need the whole world needs to go zero carbon and sustainable consumption of resources so a one planet ecological footprint so that means that wherever you live in the world what you're consuming or the pollution you're producing is is sustainable year in year out and you will have heard global footprint network or another social enterprise who pioneered that approach right. and then we've got the 10 principles which are health and happiness equity and the local economy uh, culture and community land and nature sustainable water local and sustainable food travel and transport materials and products zero waste and zero carbon energy so the idea is you use these principles to make a plan you you'd sort of whether it's for your company for your community for a project like building some homes um, we even used it for the London 2012 Olympic Games. Uh, it's being used on projects in Australia, in the States, um, in China. We worked on a project there, all over the world, in about 30 billion of real estate development and lots of companies and cities wow. too. That's really significant. 30 billion, that's really significant. Well, you get a few big projects like the Olympics and... Uh, the Mazda uh, eco city in the Middle East, and that tends to sort of bump it up a bit. But uh, yeah, it is a lot of money, and it's I think it's just out there as an idea. A lot of people just use it as almost like a checklist because it's an it makes it easy for people to understand what they need to do. The sort of head headline topics, make a plan, and then there's tools and resources uh, available. Uh, that to, to help you to guide you and you can sort of see what other people do because it's all about showing it's possible and then we can sort of run towards a sustainable future rather than sort of go oh this is a bit complicated I don't know what to do uh, absolutely fascinating so just to be clear you could apply this to a construction site or you could apply it to an existing company or you could apply it to a village or, or a or a bit of a bigger city, is that, is, is that the way this is? Just these, take these 10 principles, apply them to what you're doing, whatever that is, and, and it connects. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that would be it. And um, we, obviously, when we started it, it came from Bedzed and some work that we'd also done on sort of bioregional local products that we'd already been working on when we went to do Bedzed. What we found was uh, that you could then, because it's about people, what we need, how we live our lives, it actually applied to all sorts of other things. And so the local authority here started to use it 
the municipality started to use it for their sustainability plan and we found wherever we built a one planet community uh, the local government would get interested and 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 start to apply it to, to their own strategies so we do work it is used by cities uh, currently especially there's quite a buzz of activity in Oxford, in, uh, in Denmark, in South Africa, in Australia, all at Canada, all, all around the world, people are using it that way, but also for products. So we've worked with some uh, home and garden improvement retailer called B&Q in the UK, and they took the approach to their company. And what they came up with was that their strategy would be called One Planet Home, so like they would look after their own home and make it sustainable and their own operations. But they would also help their customers to achieve one planet living. So it's like our home and your home. And when, when we worked, started working on that with them, we looked at all the products that they sell and how, how sort of consistent they are with what products people need in a sustainable future and how sustainable were the, indeed the products because there's a lot of embodied impact in, in products. And so we identified some things, some areas where they could perhaps sell more things. So obviously, um, home energy saving, home energy use, renewable energy. Uh, they got rid of patio heaters, dumped them, stopped selling them. Uh, and they identified, we identified that, you know, they just used to have a few dusty seed packets in the corner for, for plants. Uh, and they realised that growing your own food could be something where they could really help people. So they introduced a grow your own range and it was a massive rip-roaring success. And they, and you know, they, they, they slog away patiently as a company. It's a long job if you've got an existing company and you're trying to transform it. So getting the peat out of the compost. And they're very, they've been very good at that. And they've managed some amazing <clears throat> savings in like 90% reduction plus reduction in their own waste, over a third reduction in their absolute uh, carbon emissions, such that now they basically just need to buy renewable energy uh, and then they've sort of achieved it. So you can use it in different ways, but I think the key thing is to think, how are we going to make it easy for all of us in our lives to live a one planet lifestyle? Because as I often say, nobody gets up in the morning and thinks, I want to destroy the planet quite the opposite but that is what we're doing because that's the way we've set up our lives so it's about every business every local government authority governments thinking how can we help everybody to achieve a one planet lifestyle and then as citizens there's choices we make so i chose to give up eating animals um, about a year and a half ago uh, i've been vegetarian for quite a while and now I actually find it very, very strange. It's a cultural thing, I think, that um, I was saying this um, on another podcast <laughs> recently. It's become very strange to me, the idea of killing an animal and eating it, or even keeping a cow and taking the milk from a cow. If you think about a mother with a baby, would you take the milk from a mother? And I've started to sound like the sort of people that I used to, give a wide berth myself in earlier days but our food choices and going more plant-based is an important way that we can help the planet but also with so many of us on it I think that's the key thing but also I think it's an ethical issue about you know is it okay 
to kill another being if you don't need to. I mean, I mean, what you, what you, I mean, this is fascinating because what you're describing potentially is these principles and the way we live our lifestyles are, are, are the basis of what a newism might look like because the, the, these kind of things all kind of link directly into the economy. Uh, your food choice and what you're going to eat certainly does, obviously. Um, but then your whole story about the example of B&Q is quite fascinating because here's a, a, a private sector company whose presumably its main goal is to make money, um, are basically changing their entire um, internal ethical position um, as, as a company, but also facing that out to their customers and getting their customers to also buy into that philosophy. Well, that is a major achievement by you and also very significant happening. Um, we're, starting to, we're starting to see a bit probably of the business sector starting to see that it does have some responsibilities in the wider society and the planet. Uh, but having that connection with B&Q is quite excellent. How, how did that happen? Did they kind of have a sudden moment at a board level and thought we better be good people? Or, or it, you know... How did, how did that happen? Because that, that, that side of things is really interesting. Well, I think it's the usual way things can happen in my, in my life, I've found. Um, we'd, I mentioned that we worked on sustainable bioregional local products when we first set up in 1994. And um, I was very concerned about forests being cut down and the impact that that was having on the world in so many ways, not just you know, destroying the homes of nature, destroying um, trees, just to then throw them away. Um, as well as now we realise more and more uh, what, how important they are to regulate the climate. Uh, so we worked with a paper mill in Kent, which was, make, which was brand new and was making recycled paper. And we worked to create a local paper loop. And the woman, so that was great because in terms of your ecological footprint, it was a 93% reduction in the ecological footprint of your paper use to have swathes of paper going round in a circular economy. Uh, yeah. so fantastic. Um, and then the woman who worked at the paper mill went to work at B&Q, uh, working on sustainability. So we already had known her. Also, mm -hmm. another, pro another product that we... Uh, worked on was locally produced charcoal, again, to reduce imports of unsustainably produced charcoal uh, from tropical forests and indentured labor, it's not kind of like slave labor. Uh, and at the same time, we have quite great woodlands in the UK which need managing. And if you manage them, it's good for butterflies and wildlife and, and for the public. And it's good to get, get value out of our local resources, you know, and, and that, sort of makes that work by having products to sell out of it. So we had been producing locally, we'd set up, uh, so co-founder of Bioregional Parentasai had um, worked with uh, Jeff, who I knew where we worked together in the local Greenpeace group, and knew how to run a, run a little business like that. And we set up yeah. a local charcoal business. So we worked with small producers in the woodlands who were making local charcoal and, and had a standardized bag that could then be um, sold into, filled up. So there's like one bag for, B, for, for B and Q. We got a contract with right. B and Q and there was one, right. bag, one barcode. So B and Q only had to deal with us. and We had to deal with 60 producers around the country who were delivering into their nearby stores. 
which right. value in the woodlands, but also and created those supported those jobs, but had all those benefits for butterflies and woodlands and amenity and reduced pressure on forests outside of our country. So it was a win-win situation and it was a great scheme which we actually ran for about 15 years and we started it with a grant, that's the often the way these things happen. But it was really just to test out the viability of it, so it ran as a, as a company uh, and we ended up selling it on to another company because you really need the people to keep running it. Um, I think that's, that's the thing with social entrepreneurs, you can be a serial entrepreneur, <laughs> you need yeah. to hand your baby to. Um, yeah, yeah. So we knew B&Q in these two ways and I've been able to tell you about some of our products work which I think is important. It's important to me too because I think with COVID-19, sorry to mention that word, um, we're all realising about these global supply chains, what how risky it is and that we need to create a more diverse economy and that was exactly what we wanted to do when we set up Bioregional tw 25 years ago. We've, we wanted to create diverse, strong, sustainable economies and we could produce more things locally. So back to B&Q, we knew B&Q yeah, two ways. And then also the board member, Ian Cheshire, he personally really cared about sustainability. So there's that leadership thing. And mm -hmm. he, he, had a, got, he had recruited board members with working with him and senior team members who agreed with his you know, who bought into his vision to make the company sustainable. And he then went on to become chief executive of the group company owner, Kingfisher Group, which is the third largest home improvement company in the world. And so all of this yeah. is now spread across the whole group. Ian's moved on and he mm. now advises the government. But, uh, so it's leadership, contacts, um, you know, knowing people, and having shown the value of, of what we do and, and, and having that trust, I think. So, I mean, that is just a, such a fabulous, in, in itself, that story alone is just fabulous. I mean, because it's about, you know, you starting up small, connecting up, thinking through about the circular economy to say, then getting to a bigger company in the UK and then becoming international. And the, the impact that that would have, through, I suspect, if you were to measure it in whatever way you wanted to measure it, would be really, really significant. Um, so, congratulations. I mean, this is the sort of um, really constructive, positive stories I think need to be told and people need to understand it and then buy into the, the, what you're talking about. I'm interested, though, I mean, we should speak about COVID um, uh, because we're living in it right now. What I find quite interesting is that people who've had to stay indoors have started to notice nature around them. Lots of people are talking about that. And people, more people are cycling, people are saying they're not going to get back in cars, etc., etc. So the, the, obviously COVID's impact has been um, very negative. But, but equally, there are possibly some, some, some bright things coming out of this, of people having a different understanding about you know, the amount of waste they have, about the way the planet is, about how this happened. Uh, I, I was on a call, maybe you were on it during the week, and this uh, guy from India said he, he, he looked out of his, house, his window for the first time in, in decades and was able to see the Himalayas because there was no longer, was no longer any smog there. 
And uh, it's kind of moments like that, you kind of think, yeah, what have we been doing to the planet, actually? Um, and, uh, and maybe the, the COVID is a wake-up call to us to take some practical actions individually and be inspired by stories like yourselves to, 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 to create real change going forward. Is, is that a kind of view you maybe share? Definitely. Um, and that's just such a wonderful story, Mel. And also Venice is another example of the beauty of Venice in a time of COVID. Um, but, it, but it's how do you have a good economy as well as, you know, it happened because the economy stopped. But now we need to think, so what is the new economy? And I think this is a great opportunity and I hope we don't squander it. And I feel that nature has done us a favour of a wake up call. Uh, almost as if nature designed it in a sort of a Gaia, you know, James Lovelock's Gaia theory that the planet self-regulates yeah. itself. I just wonder, I wouldn't be at all yeah. surprised uh, because it's nature, the world is a very complex, interconnected organism in, in effect. And we yeah. are, sometimes we think nature is something outside of us, but we are part of nature. And, you know, we are mammals, we are animals, you know, and... Uh, we are part of nature and there's a lot of us on the planet. So as I've mentioned a few times, actually, so I think I'll just talk about that a little bit for a moment. I was born in 1960. Uh, so I'm just coming up to being 60 years old. And there were 3 billion people on the planet then. And now it's coming up to 8 billion. It's I think it's 7.7 .7 billion. And it's predicted to sort of top out at about 10 billion. So you can just imagine, you know, and, and even a century before that, there were one billion people. So it's very only very recently that we have, um, our population has exploded. And in a way, it has um, coincided with finding fossil fuels, which has helped us to grow uh, as a species, I guess. So now we've got to be really smart and uh, design a new life which has all those values that we have come to appreciate in this time of COVID. Who are the real key workers? You know, how we've overlooked people who come in and do jobs like cleaning up, how important cleaning up is, especially, you know, for our health and our hygiene, basic services uh, and, and having the equality and paying people properly, including nurses. My daughter-in-law is a midwife. She gets paid a pathetically small amount of money. My son is a consultant and he earns a fortune um, in one of these big consultancy firms. And it just can't be right because, you know, what's more important to you that you get a good consultancy job done or that your baby is born successfully? Uh, so <laughs> I think we've just lost our values a bit somewhere along the way. Uh, and so I hope that we can, that we won't all forget and uh, that we will value uh, people in society uh, who are doing these these important jobs and create the new jobs of the future so and redesign our our built environment a little bit to enable more uh, to reduce space for cars and enable more space for cycling and walking and you know, actually in London as a necessity in order to allow social distancing that is what our mayor has said uh, there's a fund from the government to make more space for cycling and walking and reducing the amount of space for cars. And actually here at Bedsed, uh, where I live, we've got, we've got 100 homes here, a mixed community. 
and we push the car parking to the outside. We have very small roads in the inside, so the kids can go out to play, they meet each other, and people here know more of their neighbours. And if you know more of your neighbours, then that's better for your mental and physical health. And so all of this sort of thing, we've, we've sort of, as you say, at Bi-Regional and in other organisations, we've proven on a small, small scale uh, how, what the future could look like. And so what we need to do is really scale, scale up uh, and apply these, these ideas more widely because we definitely know what to do. There's, there's no question about that. You're touching on a number of fascinating uh, subjects here. So let me, just on that last one you touched on there about neighbourhoods, because that, again, in the podcast we've done, that's come up, come up quite often. Um, but there is the kind of um, where we are with, with cities. I mean, uh, should we actually be depopulating cities? Given, as you just described, you know, we've gone to this 10 million, we have these massive cities around the world which are now overcrowded. Um, and actually, um, because of that, you know, a city like London, for example, you, you don't know who your neighbours are. But in smaller villages and, and smaller towns, you, you actually do. And maybe the quality of life is, is, is better there. I mean, is, is, there, is there something around we have to have a look about how uh, we're constructing cities and the way we're living? And actually, given that the way we're communicating nowadays because of the lockdowns, via uh, internet uh, and, and so on. Um, you know, is that the way we should be uh, uh, living in the future, uh, looking at cities completely differently? I think uh, COVID uh, will have changed things a lot. And there's a, there's a certain critical mass that we do need in cities so that we uh, can have access to the facilities we need, whether it's um, shops, uh, the, the sort of... Um, intellectual thing of getting people together around universities, cultural uh, centres. But then I think it can be that cities can get too big. Uh, and in the past, in fact, in our in our sort of book we wrote about our work back in 2002, there's a Schumacher briefing called By Regional Solutions. Um, we, did, we did sort of explore that idea that um, a city needs its hinterland Ideally, in the future, perhaps the city has its hinterlands where food is grown and you have that sort of, you can have those closed loops of, um, and perhaps some of the manufacturing for the needs of the city could be around the city. And so not to get the city too big because too many people going in and out, in and out every day is a big impact on the need for a transport infrastructure. So I think perhaps just pausing for a moment to consider uh, how, how we're more strategically how we're developing our cities and uh, making sure that, that we can get this, this link with agriculture um, that we can make space within the cities for community, for people to uh, have neighbourhoods and sometimes people have said London is like a city of villages and perhaps some of the recent development has impacted on that negatively because people still do feel, you know, that they're part from a certain part of London and there is quite a strong community. Obviously, I'm speaking as a, Lond as a Londoner uh, and so other cities may be different. So I think, yes, we do need to rethink cities, more space for um, the people, for plants, less space for cars, more links to our uh, hinterlands for 
food where we can also recirculate our waste in loops uh, so that it's not waste, it's a resource. And that, that could actually be a more sustainable way forward for the new ISM. So do, do you think there's always this kind of question about uh, globalization versus localization? Um, and, and I remember Bill Clinton saying one time, okay, maybe globalization wasn't a good thing, but we can't go back in time and not remember it. Um, and, you know, it's possible now to get around the world in very quickly. Um, is, is it about us kind of changing our mindset around this and kind of saying, actually, you know, we're, we're from a particular place and, and we're staying put there and, and we understand that actually lots of travel, uh, uh, long distance holidays, etc., destroy the planet rather than help it. Is, is, is that something that we have to change, do you think? Um, or, or will that simply mean that it's only rich people that can afford to go on aeroplanes to go on holiday in the future? Or how, how, how do you think this is, it's going to work out? Because it will, will require, if I'm reading you rightly, us as individuals to make some decisions about our own lifestyle, which might inhibit some of the things we might want to do. Are, yeah. are we as individuals going to, going to do that? I think there's so many wonderful things about being able to meet people from other cultures and locations. You know, when I went to work in, on the projects in China, I, you know, I, I came to really love the Chinese people and Chinese culture. Uh, I really admire them. I think they'll be sustainable first. Did you see they've got a new Green Citizens Charter come out of their recent... Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that's, and that's another whole subject we could get onto. It's absolutely fascinating what's going on over there. I mean, I know the kind of media stuff is, is, is against one country, against another kind of nonsense. But I, I, one of the things the Chinese have got is because of just the way they are organizing the government, they decide they're going to have, you know, green sustainable policy. They have a green sustainable policy. So I remember exactly. one, yeah, I, I was over there a couple of years ago and obviously they're moving, you know, from a kind of agrarian, more agrarian, a bit of industrial revolution going on. And they created this kind of new sector to a city, which was, I think, for a quarter of a million people. It's astonishing. And they were saying that they were just, all of it was green. or well, the whole bit they were doing, there were no cars in this. They would get about in this way, in this way, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like, wow, fascinating. But then it did require the government to say, this is what's happening, full stop. Exactly. And I, what I came to really love about them was this combination of they're very entrepreneurial, very business savvy, which I, I think I feel entrepreneurial, but obviously a social entrepreneur. It's not about the money for me. It's about solving the problem. Um, but I really like that about them. And also how strong that, that sort of sense of community and sort of we are a, very much that feeling of we're in society together. I feel it, it was getting a bit fragmented by, you know, this sort of hyper uh, consumerism and, and uh, that they were starting to take on. But hopefully, and I remember talking to an environment minister about it, and he said, people just need to get it out of their system for a few years, and then they're going to want one planet living. Because they've got these, this strong feeling of community, um, mm -hmm. And responsibility and and mixed with entrepreneurialism anyway so um i forgot where we were going i tend to digress uh, sorry I, I, over the place. 
Me, me too. So I apologize. Oh, globalization. That's it. We, 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 we detoured to China, um, which yes. is interesting. But yeah, I know that my point was... Your question, Mel, about globalization. So, yeah, yes. please. I try. I like yes. you too. Yes, please. So I think for the sort of boring stuff in many ways, like food or, you know, energy, um, you know, let's just do as much as we can locally and let's just recycle the loops locally. We've got 3D printing now. Amazing to see um, school kids making the COVID visors in their in their empty school workshops for the for the National Health Service. We can make we can make things more in a more decentralised way quite soon. I feel that's coming. Uh, so we don't have to just pointlessly ship widgets around the world. You know, you just need the plan or the program, and you need the little three D printing machine, and off you go. And it could be fed by the recycled plastic from uh, something else, or maybe it can be start to be made from bioplastics, which would obviously be much better. So I think that where we can, let's try to look at the resources we've got locally, whether it's um, waste resources that we're recycling, or the sun or the wind, or you know, in the UK we're very fortunate that we're a, we're an island, and so we get we could be really the wind. The power of the wind is just huge for us and waves. You know, we could, we can make energy for ourselves. Uh, so, you know, we're not going to need oil. Um, and then, um, so if we get that basic stuff right, then I feel there's a need to reform the economic system, the, work, the way the world trade works. So that, for example, at the moment, we're, children are digging out um, minerals for mobile phones uh, and instead of going to school, in terrible conditions and causing environmental pollution. And yet when we hold our mobile phone in our hand, we have no idea, we cannot see the child, we cannot see what happened. What we need is to allow those countries and you know, even invest to get more production at the source of the raw material, to bring greater wealth there. And then when it's exported, the wealth is, is, is kept more in that country where that resource came from. So I think that was also something we explored in our uh, Schumacher briefing uh, that I mentioned earlier, that, that idea of, um, <clears throat> I think we called it a foreign exchange trade index or something. Yeah, I, I mean, it's basically like, it's, you know, it, it's the same kind of principles as fair trade. It's, it's making sure yeah. that you pay properly that, that, and you have some kind of certification somewhere, some mark somewhere that kind of says this isn't child labour. But, but the way... The way trade works at the moment, those countries are pretty much prohibited from creating a finished product. They have to they have to sell the raw material, and they can't add all the value that we add and then make all the money from. So I think giving them more of a chance uh, to produce more higher added value products from their raw materials. So in terms of um uh, going forward in terms of the economy, you'd be talking about more local economy, but you'd still have the kind of global connected world where we, we respect each other's cultures and get to know each other's cultures and they're protected. So there is some movement in the world, but the, yeah. the, the, the real uh, uh, firepower behind the, the economy is actually local. Is that what you... Yeah, for the basic day-to-day -day stuff, and then you've got a more diverse economy. Because if you if you have a more diverse economy, it's it's more it's going to be stronger against the risks 
if you just rely on one town makes has one factory that makes one product and then suddenly that product's not needed anymore the whole and we've seen this across the, the northern parts of england you get mass unemployment and that isn't what we want to see we need a bit more diversity in our in our economy and perhaps to go back to manufacturing again we've outsourced it uh, there aren't going to be many cheap labour places left in the world. And anyway, why, sh why should it be like that? We should be aiming for a good life for all citizens on the planet. Because there's plenty enough to go around. Um, yeah. Just a very slight rebalancing of the distribution will just bring the rest of the... Yeah, I, yeah I guess, I guess it's, it's, it's being very clear what a good life means. Mm. Uh, because, you know, the, the way that... The problem with the... The big problem, in my opinion, in the economy at the moment is it's completely um, out of balance. It's just, so some people are becoming incredibly wealthy, and and then there's a lot of people who are living in poverty. So the gap is is is, is huge. I mean, because of what's happening in China and India, to be the number of people falling into poverty is actually decreasing in the world. Okay, but but at the same time, and that has to be a good thing, obviously. But at the same time, the gap between those who have money and those who don't is, 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 is growing alarmingly. And look, look no further than a country like the US, which is still the richest country in the world, which now is suffering massively. It's populated massively. Thousands, if not millions, getting food because they can't afford food. And it's astonishing. But that's the system that's allowed that to happen. Um, and... Uh, we really need to kind of move away, I believe, to creating another system that doesn't allow that everything. It's so true work, Mel, and with your, your work um, with homeless people, uh, you know, how can we have homeless people in wealthy nations or in any nation? It's just, why is that considered to be okay? And the fascinating thing during the COVID crisis, uh, as you know, here in the UK, uh, the government suddenly decided that it had to find homes, temporary homes, yeah. homeless people. Yeah. Suddenly yeah. they found well, money, uh, and why not, you know? Well, I, I, I'm obviously, the area I'm working totally on the same page as you. I mean, I don't think there should be any homelessness in the world to stop. Um, I, I, why we've allowed this to happen is because of the system failure. Um, and um, it's, it's always fixable. Um, but it was totally astonishing. All of a sudden, COVID arrived and there were solutions found for homeless people. Not because people felt any more or less um, um, sympathetic towards them, because, uh-oh, they might be carrying the disease, so we better move them. And, and so they were moved into accommodation with a solution, with money behind it. And, and I kind of go, well, if you can do it then, you can do it all the time. What's yeah. to stop you? Um, and so the solution was found. So that, that's about a system change, but it's quite amazing because it seems that, you know, as, as the lockdown uh, 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 um, decreases, so more these homeless people are coming back out in the street again. So, yeah, I guess in terms of system change, um, how do we, you know, it's one of those things that it bothers me all the time. You know, what is there one thing? Is there one really important thing should be trying to follow or work on? try to find how can we just turn this turn our economy around so that it is the right sort of economy and I, I do puzzle over it a lot but obviously um, oil has been too cheap and it, we're not paying the 
true cost of the damage it's causing. So all fossil fuels need to be taxed appropriately. But then you do come into the inequality point about travel that you mentioned now. So, so I'm not saying I know exactly what the answers are. Um, I've got some books I'm meaning to read on the subject in terms of uh, uh, how we can have um, economies with, that don't need growth. Uh, maybe that could be a subject for a future programme. <laughs> well, um, I, think it's a, I think it's a key question. To be honest. But, I, you know, more of a steady state economies. Uh, but I think if we just like get away from the oil uh, and, and, and find ways to travel, if we did need the fossil fuels just for flying, so we could all have a connected world where we respect and appreciate each other. And then when we have tourism, it's tourism, which isn't just... Um, a great investment for someone who's got a lot of money but it actually is reinvested in the local community because so often the money has come from somewhere else uh, and then the people who are doing all the work and making it a success uh, don't see the benefit of it so perhaps more uh, cooperative companies how you legislate for that in the world or uh, I don't know but maybe as it catches on, talking about these the good stories of how it can be done differently and all the benefit making the case with the benefits to politicians, to the public. It's just almost like when Extinction Rebellion and the climate strikers really raised up the issue of climate uh, in front of the politicians, like you cannot argue with a schoolgirl um, that you're taking away her future over climate change, it's incontrovertible. And then suddenly it becomes much higher up the, the priorities for a lot of nations, but just because of that. So it's almost like you need public opinion to change. You need people to know that there is a better way. So it's something about uh, arresting and move, changing the communications messages. So it's great you're doing podcasts. Um, to the public so they know there's something better and then that helps to give the politicians the power uh, the mandate as it were that they know the voters want it and so they can make the tough decisions because I think with these longer term slightly abstract things like we're consuming too many resources or we've got climate change it's very hard for politicians to make those decisions as as in how, when Macron uh, put on those fuel taxes and then the, the gilets jaunes uh, people protested because everyday workers suddenly had a big pack hike on their driving their car. So, you know, it has to be done carefully, but you need, so you need, so it needs a sort of worldwide movement where people can really understand how things can be better. And perhaps COVID can be, as we start to sort of wrestle with getting it back under control, um, and people have seen this change in their lives, perhaps that can be one of the spurs uh, for, for, to sort of point the way, because the, 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 as you know, the Chinese uh, have the same word for crisis and opportunity, uh, and and so that yeah, is yeah. the situation we're in now. We're in a crisis opportunity. Crisis opportunity. Well, maybe unfortunately, Sue, we're, we're going to have to stop here because um, uh, we're running out of time. Um, I'm absolutely certain that we could talk for at least another two three hours about this because I think what you're describing are actually the fundamentals. Um, about what a newism might look like, these fundamental issues about how we live, about how we trade with each other, about global versus local, etc., etc. But I kind of 
I think the way to, to, to finish this is to say, apart from to say thank you very much and, and total respect for, the, for the, the work that you've done over the years. Um, it's been fantastic and very impactful. But I think finishing on that kind of, that word then, crisis opportunity or whatever you describe it as, crisis opportunity, this is an important moment. And so the work you're doing and the, the voice you have is very, very important and it's current. And so, Sue, I'd like to thank you very much and, and, and wish you all the best and all power to your elbow for the, for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mel. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, much enjoyed. The conversation with Sue is everything that we aim for at The Newism. Constructive, positive and realistic. She makes a happier, healthier planet seem utterly achievable. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did and that you'll tune in next week for our chat with Jeru Bilimoria, the founder of Childline in India and many other social enterprises. If you enjoy this series, we'd be really grateful if you could rate and review us on iTunes so that our conversations reach as many people as possible. Thank you.